0: Hello guys, Danny again here for another episode of Screwed Up Moments Plus, hope you all are doing well. For today's episode, we are doing something a little bit different, you know, while making and editing this show, I've always wondered if there were other podcasts like this out there, podcasts that focus on difficult moments, vulnerable moments, and which try to offer a space where these stories and guests and experiences can be heard. And thankfully enough, there are quite a number out there, and one that I think is particularly noteworthy is called Grief Out Loud, produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children children and families, and we are fortunate enough today to be able to have the host of the show, Jenna De Cristoferro, come on to talk more about the podcast and what it's like to work and be around the difficult topic of grief. Hope you enjoy. In this episode, I'm really excited to have Jenna DeCrystoferro, who is the Community Response Program Coordinator for the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families, and who also hosts the wonderful podcast Grief Out Loud. Jenna, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. And so to start off, could you please introduce yourself and what you do?
1: Sure. So basically what you said, my name is Jana, <laughs> and I'm here in Portland, Oregon, and I have worked at the Deggie Center for Grieving Children and Families. It's coming up on 18 years at the wow. end of May, which mm-hmm. I, this morning I was like, oh, my career is going to be able to vote in two months. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I've been here for a long time. It's my uh, I graduated from Portland State University. I got my master's in social work, mm. and then this was my first, like, real social work job out of graduate school Um, Mm. and yeah I think I'll be here forever as long as they'll have me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow and uh, you know you mentioned that you have a master's of of social work degree how did you decide to get into this field because doing social work is I wouldn't say it's a very typical or common uh, sort of a career for people to have was this something that you always wanted to do?
1: I love answering this question so thank you for asking me Mm -hmm. um because especially when you say like, it's not a, a typical career. I don't think I knew that until I was about five years into it. Really? <laughs> where I was like, oh, that's why people don't do this work. Okay. <laughs> when I, from the time I was really little, I always had this idea that I wanted to be a counselor or a therapist, which was wow. weird because I never went to counseling or therapy. I didn't know anybody who went to counseling or therapy. So I'm not sure where that came from. Yeah. And then in college, I was still sort of, thinking I would be going in that direction. And during the summers of college, I would wait tables mm. to make money in the summer. And <laughs> waiting tables, you deal with a lot of people's problems. They have a lot of things they want to tell you about mm. their food and their drinks and all of this. And at the end of those summers, like, gosh, I do not want to listen to people's problems. What was I <laughs> thinking? I don't want to be a counselor. <laughs> so I put that aside and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, I was traveling a little bit and I got some temp work, working in more business corporate environments. Right. And it was super clear from the start. I was like, oh, I don't – I do not fit in here. So mm. I tried a few other things. I ended up actually going to graduate school for a year in community and regional planning, mm. which now that I say that out loud, is kind of interesting that my job title is Community Response Program Coordinator. Um So I go to grad school. I don't know what planning is. Like, I don't understand it. But they let me into the program. And about halfway through the first year, I was like, oh, now I understand what this is. I definitely don't want to do this. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, all right, maybe I'm okay with listening to people's problems if it's not about, like, how chilled their salad plate is or (laughs) their permitting or what color the business down the street is getting painted. I was like, I just can't. I can't get behind Getting yeah. invested in that, and I'm grateful there's people who are invested in those things. Yeah. So I started volunteering with a program uh, in Eugene, Oregon called Committed Partners for Youth, and it was a mentoring program, and I worked one-on-one with a with a teen. Probably about 12 at the time. And the one on one part I enjoyed. But what I really loved was the time when we would come together with a group of the adult mentors and the group of the teens and the kids and do activities and mm. sharing circles. And I was like, oh, this feels great. Like being with a group of people working stuff out and building community and connection. Yeah. So that's what prompted me to quit planning graduate school. And I ended up at the social work department. And it took me until probably halfway through that graduate school experience to figure out what I was doing. I was like, oh, this is what social work is. Um, So I think I'm still figuring out that answer of how I landed here, but that's primarily it where I had to recover from the experience of being a wait staff for a few summers in a row before (laughs) I was ready to engage with people again.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I'm curious about what you mentioned earlier, how you said that uh, you found the experience of uh, talking to a group uh, or being in a group different from the one-on-one. What, what did you find different about, about that experience?
1: Oh, Danny, you're asking me to think back like 27 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's different. I think I can speak more for my present day yeah. time of being in groups because at the Dougie Center, what we primarily do is offer peer support program. Mm -hmm. It's a peer support program. So we offer groups for kids and teens and their adult family members who have experienced a death or the diagnosis uh, of an advanced serious illness in their family. So what we do is all group. I mean, there's times when you're talking one-on-one with people, but you're primarily facilitating a conversation. And by facilitating a conversation, you're creating community. And I think that is what draws me the most in thinking that for so long, grief uh, or mental health or other issues in social emotional realms have been kind of secreted away and thought yeah. of as something you had to deal with on your own. Yeah. And to recognize the power of coming together with a group of people who are in a similar, although very unique, situation and the way shame goes down, the way guilt and regret can get decreased, the way confusion can be minimized by just listening to other people's stories, even if they're very different than yours, but to be like, oh, I'm not the only one in this. Yeah. Like, other people understand what I'm going through. And then to facilitate those conversations where people are getting support and understanding from one another, not from me and the quote unquote expert role, because mm. I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to be with these folks every moment of their day. So helping them figure out how do I identify what I need for support, ask for what I need, provide what other people might need so that I have this skill set and capacity to create this community for myself in my day-to-day life. So that's a long answer to your question of why I like group. (laughs) The the short, short answer is I don't have to have the answer (laughs) because (laughs) when I'm in a group and someone says, how do I handle this? I can say, what do you all do? (laughs) <laughs> because the knowledge really resides in the people who are going through it, not me and what exactly. I've read in a book. Yeah. So,
0: I think that's so beautiful because um, sometimes, especially when you go through like tragedy or some hardship, um, you may not necessarily want to just sit down with one-on-one and, and just have an expert telling you what to do. Uh, even though sometimes you may be asking for that, sometimes it's easier to just be in a group of peers. People have gone through similar experiences and just listen to them. I think that's... Uh, like you said, one of the power, uh, one of the powers, or one of the beauties of having community, is that uh, you know you have people who can relate to you, who can share with you. It's more of like a equal playing field rather than having this one sort of uh, uh, imbalance in the dynamic of the relationship between, say, you know, a counselor and a you know, like a client or a patient.
1: That's a wonderful way to put it, and. I think what can be really helpful for people to keep in mind is that both of these opportunities for support
0: Mm. are really
1: meaningful. So there are lots of people who are sitting down one-on-one with somebody and being able to delve really deeply into all the aspects of their grief and all the things in their life that are being affected and have just that undivided attention. So powerful. And also having that sense of connection and community. Exactly. And for some people, just one or the other is going to be what they need. And for some people, both of those things, or they may cycle in and out of those two opportunities for support. So not to say one's necessarily better than the other. I just know for me as a professional, I function much better facilitating community conversations than I do sitting down one-on-one in a, in a more therapy environment.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I also have to just add there that um, the show that we do is Screwed Up Moments, right? It was originally a live speaker event. So what the, the concept was that, you know, you have three speakers for each event come up and share their story of uh, of screwed up moments of what happened in their lives. And the environment in in, in those events, I honestly had never been to, and never felt that way before. It was like, the audience of like maybe thirty to forty people, they listened intently to everything that the speaker was saying, and then at the end they would just ask questions like, "How did you deal with this? Do you have any tips and so on?" And in a way, it's, it it helps it helps the speaker because it's like, oh, you know, there are people who actually care about about what I have to say, and it sort of validates their experience, makes them feel like oh, they have some meaning and purpose in sharing their story, and and for the audience as well, it's just you know getting the the to experience oh. There are other people out there who go through a difficult moment as well, you know, and it's it's just beautiful. yeah.
1: I think, too, of the idea of being heard, being validated, mm. connecting, and also contribution. And mm. often in our peer support groups, there's folks who are coming in, kids and teens and adults, and when they first come to group, it's really about receiving support how can I be helped with this or how can I even find where I locate myself in this experience, Yeah. listening to other people. And then over time, there's a shift for many people of, oh, I'm a valued member of this group because of what I provide to mm-hmm. other people that my experience with grief and my story, which I, I may never be in a place of gratitude about, but I can see how, There's meaning in me coming to this group and helping to create this community for other people who are going through what I'm going through. And there's, yeah, I just see this sense of, I don't know what the quite the right word is, but reassurance that I can contribute. Mm. I can still be part of something.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also, I guess to to add to that a little bit, there's also this sense of um, being in a space where you're able to express or talk about these things that you wouldn't normally be able to, uh, to share and openly talk about on a day to day basis. And I guess that for people who are contributing or for people who are sharing their stories, it can be a very, um, uh, freeing experience. It can be, you know, can be a sort of, uh, comforting in a way to say to to be able to know that oh these are people there's a community there who values me who values my sharing and that I can be open and talk about what troubles me or what difficulties I'm facing where normally maybe in my work or maybe to my family and friends I have to sort of keep it down <laughs> yeah
1: yeah I have to I have to keep it down or risk navigating other people's responses that yeah. maybe don't feel as supportive or I love that you use the word freeing. And Mm. I think about that liberation idea of being able to come and talk about the things we don't usually talk about in our day-to-day lives and not having to brace for how other people are going to respond, knowing that when I'm in my peer support group at the Dougie Center, I'm not going to be met with a platitude or a statement that minimizes my experience or tries to jostle me out of feeling the pain that I'm feeling.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and this nicely transitions to the next uh, thing I want to ask you, because uh, you work at the Dougie Center for uh, Grieving Children and Families, so you primarily deal with grief. There are a lot of, you know, difficult issues that you could build a community around, certainly. Uh, maybe maybe you could point to stuff like alcoholism, maybe you could point to stuff like mental illness, but was there, why did you choose this particular um, niche, <laughs> I would say?
1: also a favorite but impossible to answer question and that (laughs) you know i I answer this question a lot and i think i've come to decide at least today in this moment that it was less about me choosing grief and more about grief choosing me really it wasn't a conscious decision Mm. to study this and when i was in graduate school i studied uh disordered eating i studied anxiety i studied sexually aggressive behaviors and adolescent males, like very different things. And I came to the Dickey Center in particular because when I graduated from my master's program, I I don't know, well, let me back up in a sec. And I will say that graduate school was a sustained two-year-long panic attack for me. Like I had such tremendous anxiety. Mm. I was very high functioning, but I was just, it was terrifying to me to be Charged with sitting down one on one with a teenager, maybe who has been arrested for sexually aggressive behavior. Right. And to, to map out a treatment plan to like help this person reintegrate into the community. It felt like such tremendous pressure. And I didn't know anything. I was like 22. I barely knew how to deal with my own life. So dealing with more significant like mental health challenges seemed really out of my reach and terrifying. So Mm. when I graduated, I was like, okay, I'm terrible at this work. I don't, you know, I'm not great at it. So I'm going to do research because that seems easier. There's numbers, they tally up at the end of the day. There's no wondering if I did it right because the spreadsheet's going to tell me, yes, you did it correctly. And Mm. that felt very reassuring to my anxious brain. So I did that for about six months while I was also volunteering at the Dougie Center and I was like, I just spent two years of graduate school and a lot of money to learn how to work with people. And now I'm dealing with numbers like this. This is not (laughs) satisfying. (laughs) So with the Dougie Center, when I I remember when I first walked in for volunteer training and they talked about the model, how we approach working with grief. And it was the idea that it's natural. It's normal. It's not a pathology. It's not something that we at the Dougie Center need to fix or change or treat. And I took like the biggest exhale I'd taken in two years. (laughs) Mm. Oh my gosh, there's a way to work with people where I don't need to be in charge of corralling their life in a particular way. And that's not really what therapy is either, but for my 22 year old anxious brain, that's what I was thinking. So when I found the Dougie center, I felt like, Oh my gosh, I found the one place where how I want to work with people, which is to facilitate them figuring out what they need. Mm -hmm. Like there's an opportunity here. So, that's kind of how I landed here. Was where am I going to be the least anxious in my professional life and still feel fulfilled?
0: <laughs> I find it quite um, amazing, actually, that one of the reasons why you you ended up at the Dougie Center was that initially you felt you felt like being a sort of counselor or that counselor position was uh, almost too burdensome because there is a lot of pressure in the sense when you are in that one on one situation uh, to sort of figure out a roadmap to to recovery, right, or to help them. Uh, get better in their life, and the reason why I find this uh, quite amazing is because you deal with the topic of death and morality on a day-to-day basis, which, to me at least, I think would be extremely burdensome
1: <laughs> <laughs> and anxiety-provoking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. So, so what what is it what is it like for you? Does it ever you know get too much at times?
1: Uh <laughs> Yeah, this is another interesting one to reflect on. Yeah, I usually don't feel like it's too much, but I think if you ask my friends and family, mm. they might say it's too much because we we can't go anywhere, any trip, anywhere, without me being like, oh, yeah, somebody died here doing this, <laughs> or somebody <laughs> died here doing that, or you could die there, don't do that, or definitely don't do that, you're going to die. So I carry all those stories with me all the time. and. Yeah. I think what's different is if I didn't have particular faces and experiences to go with these stories, it might feel different. Like I could go out and be like, oh, I know theoretically that people die climbing mountains. I know theoretically that people die driving down the road. I know theoretically that people die in Hawaii swimming. Yeah. But I go to those places and I think about the kid who sat in group with me and told me about their dad who died while they were snorkeling and had a heart attack at the same exact beach in Hawaii that I'm now standing at. And, you know, I'm not sharing those stories for confidentiality reasons, but I'm carrying those images and I'm carrying the the human grounded reality of all the different ways that people can die all the time everywhere I go. So, you know, that... That that kind of affects me, I would say. (laughs) Makes me a little more cautious about things, but I kind of was that way before I even started doing this work, so Mm. it feels like it might have just been a good lineup with how I was uh, predetermined, I would say.
0: But anyway, um, I want to move on to talking about the podcast that you host, Grief Out Loud. Uh, You've been producing it for over five years now. There's over 130 episodes. So how did this idea for Grief Out Loud come about in the first place? I understand when you first started, it was called Dear Dougie.
1: Yeah, so we started off five years ago. It was myself and a coworker Mm. who just had like a random doorway conversation one day about how, you know, the Dougie Center is located in Portland, Oregon. So we have local programming here for people in the greater metro area. Mm -hmm. And we've trained hundreds and hundreds of programs around the country and the world who also offer grief support groups for kids and teens, similar to ours based on our Dougie center model. So if a family calls me and they don't live in Portland and they're looking for support, if they happen to live somewhere where there's a program similar to ours, great. I can connect them with that. Mm. But then there's lots of places in the country and the world that don't have programs. And so what do we do for them? And what do we do for the person who's in their seventies and their parent died when they were six and they never got to talk about it mm. and they never got to process it. And now they're outside the age range of coming to the Dougie Center because we work with kids who are three to eighteen. Right. And so I thought, well, what about them? How do we how do we provide the sense of community and understanding? And so we're like, well, we could maybe record record some stuff and put it out there because then anybody can listen to it. So that was the really not thought out idea. <laughs> behind It was like, how do we reach more people? And then we just, you know, then we had to dig into like the reality of making a show, yeah. like, all the, the stuff, the equipment and the hosting platforms, like all the stuff that you're very familiar with too. And you know, I was a social worker and they were kind of a finance person, so <laughs> it took a lot of <laughs> YouTube videos and blog reading and <laughs> trying to figure out, like, how do you actually make a show, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and and you didn't come from any prior podcasting experience, right? This is all, like, starting from scratch.
1: Yeah, the only experience I had was popping my headphones in and going for a run and <laughs> listening to Serial and This American Life and <laughs> Terrible Things for Asking and uh, yeah, that was my podcast experience was being a very devoted listener to right. them.
0: Right, and so I'm 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 just a little bit curious about the the way it's structured because initially, uh, you and your your coworker and your colleague would just talk on different topics, right? That would, that would be sort of the format for the show for uh, the first few episodes. But then you moved on to one-on-one conversations. What what led you to that switch?
1: Honestly, I think it was because my co-host at the time wanted to stop <laughs> being on the podcast. <laughs> so we were like, all right, how can, we, how can we transition him out of that role? And also, like, I don't love listening to myself talk at Nauseam right. for like 45 minutes. Like nobody wants to hear me just saying the same stuff over and over again. And <laughs> and I thought, well, the, the root of the Dougie Center is peer support. It's people coming and telling their stories. So rather than people hearing me talk about other people's stories or me talk about what I've learned, how much more grounded in what we do and our mission would it be to, to have other people have a platform to tell their story? So that's how we started moving in that direction. And I do a more interview style versus a, like as you were mentioning for screwed up moments, a lot of times it's a personal uh, narrative that Mm. you are interjecting with narration. Like I'm just not that skilled of an editor and I don't have enough time. (laughs) So (laughs) the interview format is the easiest one for me to edit and get out in a timely manner.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, in a way the format, as it is now, I, I really have to say it does work because it's sort of, um, it's sort of presented in a way whereby it's just honest conversations one on one. There's no airs, there's no pretensions. It's just, you know, two people having an honest conversation about, about grief and about death and about the, the passing of a loved one. And that there's an element to that which I find very, um, humbling. I would say, especially if someone were to listen and come with, you know, their own experience of grief, I think they, w- they would appreciate that very much. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Just made my heart warm up a little bit listening to that.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so um, over the course of the doing this podcast, right, you've spoken to tons and tons of people on the topic of grief and death so are there any stories or are there any uh, guests that that stand out in particular or were especially, especially uh, memorable to you?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this question ever since you sent it to me because with 137 episodes, it's really <laughs> hard. <laughs> so I'm like, let me start at episode five and tell you about six and seven. No. So in this moment, the one I'm most thinking about is the one I'm editing because mm. I'm just listening to it. And it was one of the most powerful conversations I've had and it, I felt like a privilege to be able to have the conversation. It's with a professor named Tichelle Bordere, And we talk about her research with black youth who have been affected by homicidal homicide and and violence. Mm. And we talk about how their grief, she uses the term suffocated grief, which I don't want to get into it too much because you can listen to the episode. But (laughs) uh, just the idea that Because of racism and oppression, Black youth, when they are grieving, their grief often goes so much more unacknowledged. And their expressions of grief not only go unacknowledged, but end up being penalized, which is Mm -hmm. something I hadn't really thought about before. Because I'm a white woman in Portland talking to a lot of other white women about grief. And yeah, to think like, oh, I always hear about grief not being acknowledged grief, maybe being ignored, someone maybe not getting invited to stuff anymore because they're the downer, but to think about black youth and youth of color in their school setting who are expressing their grief through behaviors and having that get penalized rather mm. than attended to. So I'm really looking forward to getting that episode ready and out because it's, it's vital. Like people, we need to be talking about it and listening. So that one's definitely on my mind. Yeah. The other one that's really on my mind is an uh, episode 108. So the woman named Judith Fineran and her husband, Ralph, who she called Ralphie was mm-hmm. hit and killed on his bicycle. And in the course of her grief, what she ended up doing was making a documentary about it. And her purpose was to reach out and connect with the young man who was driving the car who hit oh. and killed her husband. And this like unbelievable unfolding of, emotion, and also like the pursuit of forgiveness was really, I don't know, really meaningful to me. And also because I'm a bike commuter. So I think about Ralphie every day on my bike. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What an honor. I'm still alive when I get to work and I'm still alive when I get home. So I would say, you know, your earlier question about how does it, how do these stories affect me? I think when there's ones that are so close to home for me, those do, I have to consciously work to not let them take over.
0: Yeah. Yeah. To
1: just get up every day and be like, "I'm gonna get on the bike. It's gonna be okay." Yeah. Um, so those two are really uh, on my mind right now.
0: Yeah, that's 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 incredible, and I think that's also one of the one one of the main reasons why I really love uh, uh, Grief Out Loud as a podcast because if you don't have that sort of experience of personal grief. And if the only thing you know about death and is you know by by reading the news or watching television or seeing the movies, you have sort of this image whereby grief, the grieving people, they go through the the typical five stages, right? But then through your show, you bring up all these different nuances that that you just wouldn't expect, especially the case uh, that you just brought up with the with the black queue. If it's like, oh, you know, people wouldn't know that. You know, uh, these, uh, these teens who've experienced grief, that's their way of expressing it, but they're being penalized for it. Or, you know, there are stories such as the one you just shared about the, the bike accident. You know, why would they be reaching out to, to the person who, who just, um, caused their grief? Right. And so these are, these are the different nuances that, that, um, I have sort of, Uncovered as well, you know, in my own experience speaking uh, to to different people on screwed up moments. For instance, um, there was one guest, and this one, this one really, I was so I was so confused at the end of the conversation because (laughs) because she 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 was she experienced a car accident, right? So and it broke her spine, and. When she was first sent to the hospital immediately after the accident, doctors told her that she had a 95% chance that she wouldn't be able to walk anymore, right? But then she ends up making this incredible recovery, and then she, you know, even uh, started modeling again, and she's become like a like a speaker and an author and everything. It's all great. And then at the end of the conversation, you know, she can even tell me, I am grateful that the accident happened to me. It almost doesn't make sense sometimes, these kind of uh, these kind of things, and it's one of the reasons why I find you know these conversations so powerful.
1: I think that idea of feeling grateful is is such a fascinating one, and it's so different for everybody who's yeah. experienced grief or hardship or had a really intense screwed up moment. Um, when I hear that, I hear. Well, well, I don't want to speak for her because I don't know her, but when I hear sure. people in my groups talking about it. I think if we were to parse it out it's not i'm grateful this person died i'm grateful for the ways in which i've learned to adapt and to carry this grief with me and for all the ways that it has informed who i am now and has helped me to find strength and resilience and skills and capacity i didn't know i had before yeah so that that's where the distinction comes for me and Not to say there aren't people out there who someone dies and they had such a contentious relationship or whatever the experience was that they actually are grateful that that person is no longer alive. That does happen, too, which is another reason why on Grief Out Loud you'll never hear me say uh, the death of a loved one because I never want to assume anyone's relationship. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think for a lot of people it's I'm grateful for how I have learned to live with this. I'm grateful for who I've become. I'm grateful for what I've realized and discovered about myself in this experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. And 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 I love the way that you put that as well, um, because the one of the sort of inspirations for, for me when I started the show called Screwed Up Moments was this uh, story about this lady named Julie. I'm blanking on her last name at the moment. Um, but Basically it was the story of uh, she was blind at birth partially blind at birth and uh, she was an immigrant right who escaped so she and her parents escaped from uh, I think it was Vietnam to escape the Vietnam war at the time to come to America right so she manages to overcome all these odds you know she she finishes school she she goes to law school becomes successful gets married you know has a child has a wonderful career and then gets hit with like, um, I think it was terminal cancer and then dies at age of 42, right? It's a really tragic story. But one of the most amazing things, right, about her story was that she wrote on her blog, you know, detailing her entire experience from finding out that she had cancer to the point of, uh, of her death, right? So she lists, you know, you know, there's posts of her saying that, you know, she's incredibly angry. Why did this happen to me? Then there's posts of, you know, acceptance. There's posts where she's talking directly to her husband. And then there's this one post, this one that always sticks out to me is that the one that she left to her two daughters, whereby basically she's saying that I want you to experience the pain and hardship, you know, of being uh, the kids whose mother died of cancer. Right, and the reason of this, the reason for this, is not to hurt you, but because I want you to turn this pain into uh, strength. I want you to turn tragedy into beauty. And this was like when I first came came across this, right, uh, this Julie's Julie's blogs. I could never understand this aspect because I didn't know how people could transform some so much tragedy into something positive and meaningful. But it was only until listening to these conversations and these stories, and like you said, all these um, you know, transformations or how these experiences affected them and made them in a way better that I could understand how people turn tragedy into beauty. And it's really sometimes when you, at, at the end of, of their story, you hear how much they've, they've changed or how much they've uh, grown or, or learned from that experience. It's, it's incredible. Yeah.
1: I remember that, that blog. Very well. And also the short podcast. I can't remember the name of the podcast. Yes. Yeah. Julie Yip Williams is her name. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I also thought about those kids when I read it because I thought, gosh, is there going to be space for them when they don't feel like it's beautiful? Is there going to be space for them to have permission to say this sucks Mm -hmm. and it's not okay and there's no meaning in this and my mom's dead and I hate that? And I can still look for the ways in which I am integrating this into my life you know so i just hope like for those kids (laughs) that they have an opportunity to say i don't want to have to hold up the beauty of this right now in this moment that there gets to be space for both of those things and and that's where i think a lot of the power of that peer support coming back to like what we do at the dougie center of kids being able to come together with other kids so there's room for all aspects of the conversation too
0: yeah, yeah. And I like the last part as well because um, not everyone experiences grief or hardship or tragedy the same way. So, you know, it is important to be able to have spaces that accommodate for different people's experiences or or how they handle or manage their own uh, story or grief.
1: Yeah, you summed up the Dougie Center perfectly. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So um, finally, right. Uh, so to anyone who's listening right now, Uh, Do you have any advice for people who are looking to work with grief like you do? Maybe they want to become like a social worker as well, or, you know, they want to volunteer.
1: Oh, nothing like ending with the hardest question, Danny. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Well, I'm not the best at giving the advice, right? Because I got here by accident. Uh, What have I learned along the way? I would say really spending some time examining what's the draw to this work. Mm -hmm. Because so much of this work is about What's your self-awareness? Where are you located in this time and space? And what is your draw? Is your draw in the moment because you have some pain and some grief that you need to get attention around and acknowledgement around? And can that happen parallel? Or is that something that needs to get attended to first? Is it something because you have experienced grief and you receive support and now you want to be in in a place of contribution? So I think just doing some self-examination of like, what's my motivation And then with the grief itself, I think listening to as many stories of grief as you can Mm. is a really wonderful place to start because you get to get a sense of what you were just talking about, that grief is so different for everyone. And where so much of the suffering happens for people in grief is when they bump up against other people's expectations for what their grief should look like or shouldn't look like. Yeah. So I think the more we can come in with an opportunity for learning and curiosity when we're supporting someone in grief rather than answers and understanding and assumptions, that's going to be the most like powerful way to show up and support people. So I'm constantly examining myself and my reactions and my assumptions and like, how did I skip ahead so far? What did I miss? Where did I forget to slow down and ask a question rather than uh, move forward with my my understanding, which is not necessarily the correct understanding.
0: Mm. All right. That's wonderful. So for uh, people who are interested in finding more about you or getting in touch with you or the Dougie Center or Grief Out Loud, where can they do so?
1: So our website is d-o-u-g-y dot o-r-g. So that'll take you to our main website. Mm -hmm. From that main website, you can find Grief Out Loud, the podcast. You can also find Grief Out Loud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, like anywhere else, Spotify, all those places. Mm-hmm. And then on our website, we have a series of tip sheets written for adults who are looking to support kids and teens. We have a whole host of resources. We have a national directory where you can search for other programs that are similar to ours in your community. Um, and then all the ways to contact us. You can also just email me at help at mm.
0: All right, that's wonderful. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Jana.
1: Oh, thank you so much for hosting your show, Danny. It's just, I've enjoyed the episodes I've listened to and I'm really excited to add it to my favorites list.
0: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right, so that was the interview with Jana. Really, really loved that conversation. I mean, you could just tell even after so many years working at the Dougie Center that she still has this incredible amount of passion and dedication towards her work. If you would like to check out the Dougie Center or the Grief Out Loud podcast, I'll be leaving the links in the episode description. Otherwise, this has been your host, Danny. Thank you for listening. Do follow or subscribe to the show. Spread the word and see you soon. Season 2 is coming, I promise.